Hi, One Goal community. It's Elaine Boyd, Pelotonia's Event and Volunteer Operations Coordinator. Since 2008, Pelotonia has raised over $236 million for innovative cancer research. And thanks to our partners, 100% of those funds have gone directly to research at the James at Ohio State. Together, we will see an end to cancer. To get involved in our one goal, visit pelotonia.org. That's pelotonia.org, or click on the link in the episode notes. This podcast is powered by Pelotonia. To learn more about our goal 10 cancer, visit pelotonia.org or see the link in the show notes. When I saw a patient of mine the very first year that I rode, recognizing that she was out there pedaling on the back end of finishing chemotherapy, for me, that was the inspiration. And whenever I see a patient out there, again, it is just so special to recognize that they're giving back to try to create that cancer-free world. Welcome to One Goal, a storytelling podcast from Pelotonia. We're a passionate community dedicated to funding innovative cancer research. I'm your host and president of Pelotonia, Joe Apgar. Your journey with us to the finish line begins now. Pelotonia is powered by an unstoppable community, and it's through research we will see an end to cancer. We want to thank our major funding partners for making all of this possible. The American Electric Power Foundation, Bath & Body Works, Huntington, Peggy and Richard Santulli, and Victoria's Secret. When you're done experiencing this episode, we'd be honored if you would leave a review and share it with family and friends. This really helps extend the impact of this series and helps further our one goal. Thank you. And now, on to the episode. So we are super excited to have on the podcast today, Dr. David Cohn, who is a gynecologic oncologist and the chief medical officer at the James Cancer Hospital. So welcome. Joe, it's a pleasure to be here. Big fan of Pelotonia, as I know, as you know, and uh, it's an absolute pleasure to spend some time with you this morning. Let's get to know you a little bit and, and where you grew up and ultimately, you know, why you chose to go to medical school. I grew up in... Maryland, one of the Washington, D.C. suburbs after having been born in Washington, D.C. And my path to being a doctor was, you know, one that was relatively straightforward. I had no idea what I wanted to do out of high school, had no idea what I wanted to do in college. Got admitted here at the University of Michigan as an undergraduate, um, thought I was going to be a lawyer, which is what my father was, and then realized through the process that I just felt like I needed some additional level of connection. You know, it's when seeing family members that had medical conditions and I just identified with the potential of being a physician, really having no mentor in my life at that point in time who was a physician and had no family members that were in medicine, but just felt that there was some type of a calling that this would be something that I might enjoy as a career. And looking back, I don't know how it happened, but I couldn't imagine doing anything else but being a doctor. So when you say you were looking for more connection, you know, sort of the human connection and just helping people, that was just something, some burning desire inside of you? You know, in the simplest sense, that's exactly what it is. Um, being a physician means that you have the opportunity to spend time in the lives of individuals at a really intimate moment. And I felt like that was something which just, it, it seemed it seemed right, it felt right. And um, it was that human connection. And again, when I kind of plot the course out for how I ended up being 
an oncologist and being in this position, I think that a lot of those themes continued to resonate. And where did you end up going to medical school? So I went to Georgetown University uh, in okay. Washington, D.C. It was great to be back, you know, close to home and family. And, you know, medical school is, uh, it, it was an intense experience, but having, you know, family and connections there was really important. Yeah. What was the experience like sort of at Georgetown versus Michigan? And, you know, Michigan, obviously Ann Arbor is known as like this college town. Georgetown's in a big city, I guess. Was the experience different probably just because you were in medical school and medical school is not the same as undergrad? Yeah, I think it was a very different experience, more so than um, the location, but rather the curriculum and kind of the commitment as well. For me, you know, Ann Arbor is great, but being in DC and having um, more exposure to some culture, different populations, additional diversity, I think that was really pretty cool. And that translates to when you're taking care of patients as a medical student, you're being exposed to, you know, an inner city hospital in Washington, DC. So I think that the location of where you're in medical school really does influence the type of patients and population that you end up seeing, which also defines the nature of their disease and the severity of disease too. So how did you, or at what point do you start to choose a specialty and sort of go down that path? Yeah, everyone does it at a bit of a different rate. Some people go to medical school saying, I want to be a this. Um, I went to medical school saying, I wanted to be a family practitioner who would work at the bottom of a ski mountain (laughs) ski almost every day of ski season. And looking back at that plan, I think I messed up a little bit. That could have been a good plan. (laughs) (laughs) I actually took a year off before medical school, between undergraduate, I got into Georgetown Medical School and deferred for a year and kind of lived that dream and being in Wyoming at the bottom of a ski mountain, not as a physician, but being a doctor of skis. I worked in a ski shop. So that was my dream is going into medical school. I wanted to be a family doctor, take care of everybody. And in my case, Joe, I realized that being a, a great family practitioner, which is what I wanted to be, requires an amazing knowledge of a lot of things and depth in a lot of areas. And I realized that I was a person that wanted to know a lot about something, uh, not a little bit or a fair bit about everything. And so that kind of led me to find a specialty of obstetrics and gynecology I could still, you know, potentially be in a primary care setting and know a lot more about a specific topic. And then once I finished that, you know, then I became a sub subspecialist, which kind of re-emphasized my need for knowing everything about a specific topic. I, I want to back up to your Wyoming experience. So where where in Wyoming were you? So I was in Jackson, Wyoming. Jackson, you were in Jackson. Ski resort. Um, and I've got to admit to this story. Again, my dream of you know spending the year making some money, getting prepared for, uh, for medical school. This was probably one of the most influential times of my life because I'm embarrassed to say it, but I will mention it. Two things happened to me that really defined me as a person. Number one, I was fired from three jobs within a month. As soon as I got there, fired from a construction job fired from a job at a ski shop, and then fired from a wait staff job. Um, And then the second thing that was really defining for me is that on the first day of ski season, I uh, got on my skis, went up to the top of Jackson Mountain, and then halfway down ended up falling and fracturing my spine. Holy cow. And ended up not skiing the rest of the ski season. And when I look back to things, the crucible moments in life, I think that those two things of my year off 
are probably one of the most important things that I learned about how to be resilient um, and recognizing really what's important, I think, is health and wellness and well-being. And all of those things, I think, really helped to shape me, not just as a physician, but I think more importantly, as a person. So back to uh, medical school here at Georgetown, you know, you, you at some point made the decision to, to specialize even further and, um, you know, have a cancer focus. Um, and then you ended up at the James. So how, how did that sort of path wind? Yeah. So when I wanted to be an OBGYN, you know, delivering babies and doing gynecologic surgery wasn't with the intention of being an oncologist. Okay. I didn't know a whole lot about oncology. You know, I was never exposed to it as a medical student. Um, and in residency, I realized two things. Number one is I really identified with cancer patients. And I don't know if it was, again, the recognition that these are crucible moments for cancer patients when they're diagnosed and we have an opportunity to really influence both outcome, but also how you treat individuals, how you treat patients as people. And this happened right around the same time my exposure happened, right around the same time that my father who had multiple myeloma had a reoccurrence that ultimately he died from. And I just remember hearing my dad's experiences with his oncologists and how important they were in his life as well. And recognizing the incredible opportunity that we have as physicians to be able to be helping people at one of the hardest and most challenging times of their lives. Because of these opportunities, we're in a position where we can provide care for patients to the best of our ability. And even if I can't change outcomes always, try my best to do so. But even if I can't, you realize that I'm, we're able to do the best that we can do in that situation. And I think that that means that all of our patient interactions can be rewarding when you really recognize that we have an opportunity to treat patients as individuals, treat them aligned with their goals, and then provides a really important opportunity. So it's a long answer to say that I just really identified with cancer patients because of personal experiences and just because of this really special relationship. Looking back, I couldn't imagine doing anything differently. Yeah. When did you come to Columbus and, and the James? So 2001 is okay. uh, the year that I started here. And that was the year that I graduated from my fellowship program. So I've had one job as a faculty member or a full physician. It's just been a remarkable opportunity that I've been provided here at the James. It's uh, it's a really special place. I mean, Ohio State in general just has this sort of passionate supporter base behind it. And I think a lot of that has to do with football, but I'm curious, you know, what it's like for you being a University of Michigan alum, <laughs> but now having spent 20 years at, yeah. at the James and Ohio State, uh, uh, where that allegiance sort of <laughs> sways or how it leads you. I've got to be honest about this because otherwise I would be disingenuous. My football team is the Michigan Wolverines. Everything else in my life, I am committed to Ohio State and the James. I tend to not wear things that say Buckeyes because to me, that's the football association. Yeah. But I am proud yeah. to put on my lab coat that has the block O and says the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and the James Cancer Hospital. So I can talk about Ohio State football, um, but when they play Michigan, I don't have to cheer for the Buckeyes. And I apologize to the listeners, but uh, anything else would be disingenuous to really what I do believe. Yeah. You and me both. You and me both. <laughs> um, and so, you know, now 
you know, you're the chief medical officer and, you know, you and I have joked before when we were, when we were looking for a chief marketing officer, <laughs> uh, they both get uh, abbreviated as CMO, but uh, we know they're very different roles. But what does being the chief medical officer entail? So for the last four years, I've been the CMO, not marketing, but medical officer. And um, it does not involve a whole lot of marketing, which is good because that is not my specialty. (laughs) Um, I've got a really unique opportunity, Joe, to oversee the clinical care that's delivered within the James and its ambulatory locations where we treat cancer patients. I oversee the care delivery. I oversee our quality program to ensure that our patients are receiving the highest quality care. I'm also responsible for a lot of the relationships with the faculty. There's about 220 physicians who spend almost all their time at the James. And so I look at them as a really important group to the running of the hospital. We've got others that are not primary James doctors that are critically important, and obviously all of our staff as well to make this place run. But it's those primary James physicians that, you know, really allow us to do what we do and then to work with our leadership team to ensure that the strategies uh, that we are developing through our strategic plan are executed effectively. And then I think really importantly, it's a very strong relationship with our research team as well in our comprehensive cancer center, which is kind of when you think about it, this incredible circle that we develop scientific discoveries at the comprehensive cancer center, which are then utilized in our cancer patients allow us to ask new questions that are addressed by our scientists, and then that flywheel keeps spinning faster and faster. You know, on this podcast, this is now the fourth season, and we've had a chance to interview a lot of people who have been diagnosed and treated at the James. And every single person, when they talk about the care and the people, from the person who cleans your room, to the nurses, to the doctors, to the welcome staff, to sort of everyone they interact with, they often say that the best part of the experience is just all of the people inside that building. I'm curious how that makes you feel. It gives me chills every time I hear that because that is why we do this. Practicing medicine is hard, uh, but it is much harder to be a patient. This is the most important thing we do, which is to put our patients right at the center of everything that we do. And so patient-centeredness, I think, is really the key to being able to have that experience that we hear about um, day in and day out of just how special the James is. One of the things I want to chat about and shift gears just a little bit is uh, the recent cancer moonshot. You know, we were honored to have Doug represent us at the White House and, you know, to hear uh, Dr. Biden and President Biden and Vice President Harris talk about just these really big goals for reducing cancer deaths and putting a real focus on screening and prevention. What was it like for you as chief medical officer of, you know, third biggest cancer hospital in the country? What was it like for you to see that commitment put on the big stage and to put a spotlight on prevention and put a spotlight on cancer screenings and and sort of all the the stuff that comes with that? What did that feel like for you professionally? I I imagine it's got to feel pretty amazing. It is pretty amazing. That's the perfect description. And so there's been a recognition for many years about how the collaboration amongst experts is really key to starting to see some of the successes and improvements in cancer outcomes. We've got a tradition, I think, in academic medicine or academics in general of having silos that exist. But sometimes just that local commitment only gets you so far. 
working collaboratively together across different laboratories, across a medical center, a university, but also different universities and different programs working with each other is the way to really escalate and elevate the timelines to try to create these major discoveries. And so if we're going to if we're really going to make a dent in cancer, it's going to be through collaboration. So that's, I think, on the discovery side. The piece about prevention and screening is really key. And so COVID has been incredibly challenging. And I think that in many ways, we have done it to ourselves at the medical centers and hospitals to keep people out of the screening and preventions that are typically recommended. Early on in the pandemic, when there was little data about what safety looked like, we told people not to come into the hospitals, not to come into the clinics. And so I think what happens is that when individuals say, we're not going to do that, we're not going to get a colonoscopy, we're not going to end up getting breast cancer screening or cervical cancer screening. When the six weeks or six months of let's try to stay out of the system turns into six years, that's when you're going to end up with a major impact on finding cancers later in their course when the rates of cure are not nearly as high. And so it's estimated that even in the US, there's gonna be an excess of 10,000 deaths over the next decade as a result of delayed cancer screening. And that was early data, thinking that we'd be back to normal by now, and we're not. And so that number could rise substantially if we don't continue the efforts to say it is safe to be back to screenings and ensure that our individual patients um, and communities are not in a position to you know, stay away. We want them back. We want to make sure that there's equitable access also to healthcare and healthcare screening. I think that's the other important thing we've learned through COVID is that um, ensuring that our communities are well cared for and that they have access is really the key to getting everybody back to where they need to be for screening and prevention. You've been a rider since day one. You are, uh, you'll be humble, but you are an excellent cyclist yourself. You know, being at Ohio State since 2001, all of a sudden this idea was born. Let's have, let's have this crazy massive bike ride and see if anybody shows up and raises money. And, uh, and you stepped up that first year. I'm, I'm curious what it was like. So the first year, you know, I remember that you know, my wife had a couple friends that came in, one from DC and one from Chicago to ride. And so we had this group at our house that was getting up early and we managed to not get up early enough. Uh, <laughs> ended up at the very, very back of the pack. Oh no. We were standing there. It was like the start might've been seven o'clock and maybe by 7.30, we started to roll. And I look over and the person next to me is Jim Trussell, the football coach at the time oh, <laughs> of the Buckeyes. And so I struck up a conversation with uh, with Coach Tressel, and it was just from that beginning, I was like, wow, the coach of the OSU football team is here, riding in Pelotonia. This is a really special experience. Seeing people on the side of the road that were cheering the riders on, it was incredible signs that were inspirational. And the very first year, Joe, is that I looked at the Columbus Dispatch the Monday after Pelotonia, and there was actually a photograph and it says, go riders. Thank you, Dr. Cohn, for saving my life. Holy cow. I crossed the finish line the first year with tears in my eyes, just thinking about, again, family, friends, and patients that I've been able to care for who've been touched by cancer. Every year, that's also continued to be the case. Nothing has changed about that. And a lot of it is the recognition that we're doing this to try to improve the lives of so many individuals here in Columbus, across the state across the country and across the world. And 
when I saw, you know, a patient of mine, the very first year that I rode, recognizing that she was out there pedaling on the back end of finishing chemotherapy, I was like, wow, I can't believe this happened. And I think the thing that, that really congealed for me is that one year I took a spill um, on the road in Pelotonia, something my fault entirely. And I ended up, you know, ultimately requiring stitches and I broke some ribs. So it hurt to ride. And I ended up finishing the ride that day. And someone said to me, how could you do that? Like, you know, you had broken ribs. How do you ride with broken ribs? And to me, it was the recognition that there are patients of mine and patients of others that were on the road that were riding in far worse condition than I could ever be in. Uh, If they can do it, then we should all be doing this as well. And for me, that was the inspiration for why Pelotonia is so critically important. And whenever I see a patient out there, again, it is just so special to recognize that they're giving back to try to create that cancer-free world. I I remember when you took that spill um, and thinking about how how hard it would be to breathe with broken ribs. Um, (laughs) I I also want to just point out that I've now talked about breaking my back skiing and breaking ribs cycling. (laughs) Um, Maybe I should be thinking about a rubber suit uh, or some other form of fundraising and inspiration for myself rather than trying to do athletic endeavors. Maybe uh, in a few years, we ought to get you into the new Albany walking classic or something. <laughs> I'll break something there, I promise. What's the hardest ride you've ever done yourself? One of the really special things I've done is that my daughter and I have ridden, I think, four times now, the, the first day 100 miles, which is just really amazing. But one year I finished the 100 mile ride and I was planning on riding the next day 100 miles back towards New Albany. And a friend of mine um, who is an exceptional cyclist said, hey, let's ride together. Um, (laughs) And I promise you we're gonna have a relatively quiet pace. Uh, But it was not a calm ride. It was not a slow ride. I hung with him for about 65 miles. And then I just remember seeing this long hill up upwards and I kind of waved goodbye and said, I will see you at the finish at line. The finish. Exactly. Oh, so funny. that was a hard, that, those are always hard rides, but you know, we do it to ourselves. What are your, what are your 2022 Peloton plans? Have you decided what, what route you're doing? Um, you know, I sign up for um, the maximum mileage and I like to have a placeholder that's there to see, can I do that? Um, that's always been my goal. I love fundraising. You know, it's one of the things that makes me most proud is being able to get out to the community having the awareness of Pelotonia in the community and then raising money for cancer research as well. So um, I set my fundraising goals high, I set my mileage high and I see how I, whether I'm in condition to do that, whether I can ride 200 miles. Um, I anticipate that's what I'll end up doing uh, this upcoming year. I love cycling, like you said, and uh, if I could make it to you know another 200 mile ride, I think that's fabulous. So last question. Um sort of reflecting back on your 20 years at the James and where, you know, in 2001, we stood, I guess, as a society from, you know, a standpoint of seeing an end to cancer, where we stand today. I think every physician researcher we've had a chance to talk to, you know, those 20 years have been absolutely magnificent uh, in terms of progress in the research field. I'm curious your vantage point on that. It's really been a mind-blowing two decades since I've been here. 
um, the progress that we've made with knowledge of the genetics of cancer, the knowledge that we've created and here, created here with the Pelotani Institute for Immuno-Oncology that was predicated by the knowledge that we now have about the role of the immune system in fighting off cancer has just been incredible. I mean, people who are would never have been cured of cancer before are being cured. And so as we're making these incredible strides in many cancers, I think that the opportunities that we now have are how do we take what we know and extend it beyond the cancers where there is benefit? How do we find the individuals that we'd expect to benefit from immunotherapy, for example, who are resistant, who don't have the response we'd hope? How do we gain knowledge in those areas as well? And then I'd say, Joe's, that we talked about the prevention already. And so I think that there's an incredible opportunity that we have today for looking at the best type of cancer that we could all get is one that you never have. And yep. recognizing that there are certain types of cancer where there still is not good screening or prevention, but also even when we do have good prevention and screening strategies, that there are populations within Columbus, within the state of Ohio and across the country that are not utilizing them to their greatest advantage. And so how do we leverage the knowledge that we've created here and elsewhere to try to create population health to prevent cancer from ever happening. And so I'm really excited for the future. Sounds like a pretty amazing future, if you ask me. Well, it was just absolute pleasure having you on the podcast today. And uh, I know the entire community is looking forward to seeing you out on the road and um, hopefully not having to see you in in the hospital. But uh, <laughs> but I think this year, uh, this year in particular, Peloton is going to be pretty incredible and we've, we've got really high hopes for this year. So uh, thanks for coming on. Well, my pleasure, Joe, again, every year in Pelotonia is incredible. And um, I look forward to being out there and so appreciate the partnership uh, between Pelotonia, the James and the comprehensive cancer centers that we can only do this together. So thank you. This has been one goal, a storytelling podcast from Pelotonia. I'm your host, cancer survivor and president of Palatania, Joe Apgar. Interview and production scheduling by our marketing and communications team, Gabby Blauert, John Tolbert, and Alita Smith. One Goal is carefully crafted, produced, and mastered at the studios of Wessler Media. Special thank you to all of our guests for being so willing to share their inspiring journeys for this podcast. Also, please rate, review, and subscribe so you can listen to previous episodes and receive notifications about future ones. If you want to learn more about the Pelotonia community and how you can make an impact on cancer research, see the link in the show notes or visit pelotonia.org. That's pelotonia.org.